When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Native-born Virginia, graduate of William & Mary, lawyer, delegate to the Continental Congress, Governor of Virginia, Secretary of State. No, we're not talking about Thomas Jefferson, as you could probably guess from the title of this mini-episode. Our focus today is on Edmund Randolph, Jefferson's successor at the State Department. Welcome to this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Now, why are we devoting an entire episode to Edmund Randolph? Well, dear listener, I would ask that, besides our mentions of him in this narrative, how much did you know about Edmund Randolph? Have you ever read anything focused on his life and career, or ever heard anyone on any other podcast talk about Edmund Randolph? I will confess that, years ago, when I began reading about the Washington presidency, I didn't know much of anything about him either. He was just one of those names in the history of the early republic that popped up from time to time, but without anyone taking much time to focus in on who he was or his career. However, if we are to understand why he was chosen to succeed Jefferson, I think we need to understand a little more about him and his life leading into January 1794. The nation's second Secretary of State was born in Williamsburg, Virginia on August 10, 1753 to John and Ariana Randolph. Edmund's father was a lawyer who had, in the years prior to Edmund's birth, been named to the Common Council and as clerk of the Virginia House of Burgesses, a post that both his father and grandfather had held early in their careers. Both his grandfather and uncle had served as Attorney General of Virginia, and the Randolph family was prominent in Virginia society. Edmund's early life was described by his biographer John Reardon as carefree. As noted by Reardon, quote, Unlike most of the children of Virginia's more prominent families, he, Edmund, was not raised in the isolation of a family plantation, but in Williamsburg, the seat of government for colonial Virginia. Since his parents' home at the south end of England Street was only a few blocks from the center of town, it always seemed to be the scene of much activity. Like many male members of the Virginia gentry, when he was 16, Randolph began his studies at William & Mary in its School of Philosophy. As his family lived in Williamsburg, it appears that he remained at home rather than moving into college housing. By all accounts, it seems that Randolph did well in his studies as he was awarded a one-year studentship an honor that carried with it a stipend of 30 pounds, as well as free tuition and board for two years in a row. However, for some reason, Randolph left the college two or three months prior to his completing his studies, and instead switched to studying law with his father. By this point, John Randolph had become Attorney General of Virginia, so Edmund would be training with a recognized leader in the legal profession of the colony. Given his family's long history and legal practice, it was not long before Edmund appeared for, quote, qualification in several of the county courts in the colony. And by August 1774, he had gained the qualification needed to practice before the colony's highest court, the General Court. An interesting story from this time in his life. In the fall of 1774, apparently Jefferson was intending to represent several clients before the General Court during the fall term, but was unable to travel to Williamsburg due to illness. Thus, he asked Randolph if he could represent them in his stead. 
Randolph was only too glad to, and sent all of the clients a printed circular in which he told them that he, quote, hopes that you will not repent in having me engaged for you on any other occasion. That's right. He swooped right in and tried to permanently steal Jefferson's clients in what was intended to be just a one-time favor. Don't ever say Edmund Randolph wasn't one to take advantage of an opportunity when it presented itself. And indeed, in the midst of the turmoil leading to the revolution, there were many opportunities which presented themselves to ambitious young men. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. While Edmund's uncle, Peyton Randolph, would early on sign up with those rebelling against the authority of Great Britain in the 1770s, his father, John Randolph, took more of a loyalist approach. When Virginia Royal Governor Dunmore fled from Williamsburg and took shelter on the HMS Fowry off the coast of Yorktown in June 1775, it was John Randolph who would go back and forth between him and the House of Burgesses attempting to work out a compromise. But when news of the Battle of Bunker Hill arrived, there was no going back for Virginia or Edmund Randolph. Edmund left home in mid-July 1775 and journeyed north, where he joined George Washington's command outside Boston. He was named as one of Washington's aides-de-camp on August 15th. A couple of weeks later, John Randolph and his family would depart from Williamsburg, bound for Great Britain, abandoning the land on which their family had lived for so long, out of an even greater attachment to the mother country. Bad news was heaped on bad news, when in October, Edmund received news of the death of his uncle, Peyton Randolph, as he would need to put his uncle's affairs in order, as well as deal with outstanding business that his father had entrusted to Peyton's care. Edmund asked for, and was granted, a leave of absence, and headed home to Williamsburg. While there, he would be able to provide Virginia's leaders with intelligence from Washington's headquarters, and would in turn send reports back to Washington. However, he would ultimately not return to service with Washington and would prove, even without the support of his father or uncle, to be quite capable of making his way in the political world of the Revolution. Beginning in January 1776, Randolph would receive a series of appointments. In January, he was named to the Court of Admiralty. Then in early April, he was elected as a delegate to the Virginia Convention. At the convention, he was named to a committee of 28 delegates charged, quote, to prepare a declaration of rights and a plan of government for Virginia. As the convention wound down, Randolph was appointed to that post to which his grandfather, his father, and his uncle had all served. Edmund Randolph was chosen to be the first attorney general of the state of Virginia. Not one stop at just one office, Randolph was elected the mayor of Williamsburg on November 30th. 1776 would also prove to be the year in which Randolph began the process of building his own family, as he married Elizabeth Betsy Nicholas, daughter of the former colonial treasurer Robert Carter Nicholas, on August 29th. 
Thankfully for Edmund, there wasn't much to do as attorney general due to the war disrupting the state's judiciary, and the office of mayor didn't require much of his time either. It seems that someone saw him twiddling his thumbs as he was appointed first to the Board of Governors of William & Mary in 1777, then was named in May 1778 as clerk of the Virginia House of Delegates. He would have to give up the latter post in 1779, however, as he received his first appointment to national office when he was named as a delegate to the Continental Congress. Despite his being based out of Philadelphia while Congress was in session, Randolph did retain the post of Attorney General of Virginia. For some reason, He had thought that he could do both jobs at the same time, but he was dissuaded of that notion soon after arriving in Philadelphia in late July. As noted by Reardon, quote, The way Congress and its committees conducted business required the continuous presence of a delegate in Philadelphia. And as the attorney general of his state, Randolph felt that he could not remain away from Virginia indefinitely. Thus, as the last taken up, the post of delegate to Congress was the one that Randolph put down, resigning in October. Upon his return to Virginia, Randolph would resettle his family in the state's new capital of Richmond, further up the James River. He would move just in time to be there when a British invasion fleet landed and moved into Richmond, burning the city before withdrawing to Portsmouth, Virginia. Luckily, it seems that the damage to the Randolph's house was minimal, as they were back at home when Betsy gave birth to their first son, Payton, in February 1780. The Randolphs would be evacuated from Richmond once again when Cornwallis threatened the capital, as well as the rest of southeast Virginia in the spring. Randolph would be returned to the Continental Congress in June of that year by a vote of the state legislature, and, though concerned about leaving his wife and infant child in Virginia while British forces were still on the loose, Randolph did set out in early July for Philadelphia, though again he did not resign his position as Attorney General of Virginia. Neither Philadelphia nor the Congress would prove to be much to write home about. At this point in the war, the capital city of the United States was suffering the burdens of war with high prices being rampant and supplies often being in a shortage. Meanwhile, as noted by Reardon, quote, Randolph had not been in Philadelphia very long before he became aware of the rather obvious decline that had taken place in the quality of the delegates serving in Congress. With a few noteworthy exceptions, Congress was composed of sincere but rather undistinguished delegates who had neither the prestige nor the influence to command the type of respect that body so desperately needed. It was during this time that Randolph would grow closer to a fellow delegate from Virginia, a, quote, shy and unassuming man named James Madison. Randolph would gain experience in a breadth of subjects due to his work while in Congress on committees, quote, to prepare an ordinance establishing a court of appeals for admiralty cases, to increase congressional authority under the Articles of Confederation, to consider a memorial related to the Western land sessions, to determine military needs for the coming year, and to define the functions of the Department of Foreign Affairs, among others. Though he would only serve in Congress for eight months, it provided him a good introduction to domestic and foreign issues on a national scale, something that he would bring back to a Virginia trying to figure out its way forward following the news of victory in Yorktown. Now that peace was at hand, Randolph's work as state attorney general picked up, while on a personal level, there was much to think about in his personal life. His law practice, which played a key role in his household finances, was also picking up and his wife Betsy was pregnant with their second child, Susan, who was born in October 1782. Around the same time, Randolph's aunt, the widow of his late uncle Peyton, 
died, and Edmund was soon busy settling the estate she had inherited from her husband, as well as dealing with his father's creditors, who, in John Randolph's absence, saw his son as a good target from whom to seek payment. The following year, he would learn of his father's death in England, and Edmund reached out to his mother to get an idea of what she would require in terms of support, as well as made arrangements to fulfill his father's wish for his body to be interred in the chapel on the William & Mary campus. In these acts of devotion, the son who had been left behind became the patriarch of his clan. Though his personal affairs kept him from pursuing much of a public life during this time, the Randolphs did remain active in Richmond society, entertaining notable citizens quite frequently. Edmund got more involved in the Virginia Lodge of Masons and acted as an on-the-ground proxy for Jefferson, then serving in his diplomatic post in Paris and guiding plans for constructing a new state capitol building. Life was on a rather even keel for the Randolphs up until 1786. Their third child, a son named John, had been born in October 1785 and was described as, quote, a strong and healthy baby. However, in the spring of the following year, John died quite unexpectedly. This was a tough blow for the couple, as described by Reardon as follows, quote, For weeks, Randolph, unwilling to do anything except console and comfort his grief-stricken wife, was enveloped by a mood of depression. He failed to fulfill the minimal duties of the attorney general's office. He ignored his law practice, and he lost absolutely all interest in public affairs. Letters went unacknowledged and probably unread. It was a dangerous and an unhealthy frame of mind, and the deliberate inactivity only served to prolong and deepen his depression. Around this time, larger affairs would draw him out of his depression and back into the public arena. The Virginia House of Delegates passed a resolution on January 21, 1786, calling for a meeting of representatives from all of the states of the Union to meet, quote, to take into consideration the trade of the United States and to make recommendations to Congress on steps that could be taken towards, quote, their common interest and their permanent harmony. Randolph, along with his associate James Madison, was of the five men named to represent Virginia at the meeting, and, after learning that the meeting would be held in Annapolis, Maryland in September, Randolph, as the senior member of the group, set himself about the business of organizing the delegation. While still likely feeling the pang of loss, setting out for Annapolis allowed Randolph an opportunity to focus on other tasks. Ultimately, there would prove to be little that the Annapolis Convention could accomplish, as when they assembled for their first session, quote, only 12 delegates from five states were present, and quote, only three states, Virginia, Delaware, and New Jersey, had enough members present to fulfill the minimum delegation requirements established by their respective legislatures. The most important resolution to come out of the convention was to call for another meeting, quote, at Philadelphia on the second Monday in May next, to take into consideration the situation of the United States, to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the Constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the Union. Does that date and language sound familiar? The road was set for the Constitutional Convention. Before that convention would meet, though, Randolph would add one more title to his resume. On November 7, 1786, Edmund Randolph would be elected by the Virginia legislature as governor of the state. Now, it should be noted that at the time, the governorship had very limited powers, and Randolph, in his message accepting the election, noted that, quote, more difficulties are in prospect, 
then prudence ought to have prompted me to encounter. The nerves of government seem unstrung, both in energy and money, and the fashion of the day is to calumniate the best services if unsuccessful. What then am I to expect? Not much of approbation, I fear. I must be content to ward off censure. However, I shall offer myself to these risks without shrinking and make the motives atone for the miscarriages in the execution. He would have little time to make miscarriages, as on December 4th, less than a month since Randolph's election as governor, he, along with Washington, Madison, John Blair, Patrick Henry, George Mason, and George Wythe, were named as Virginia's delegates to the upcoming convention in Philadelphia. Randolph would spend a considerable time of the remainder of his tenure as governor both filling vacancies in the delegation when members refused to serve and in trying to convince that key delegate, George Washington, to agree to attend to lend his prestige to the endeavor. On May 5, 1787, he would set out for Philadelphia. As he was apparently wont to do, Randolph decided that to be governor of Virginia, one didn't necessarily need to be in the state of Virginia, and thus did not resign the governorship while serving in the Constitutional Convention. Randolph would spend a good portion of his first days in Philadelphia working with the Virginia delegation in strategizing, participating in meetings of the delegates at what we now know of as Independence Hall, and reconnecting with old acquaintances. Securing lodging for all of them, Randolph soon wrote to his wife Betsy, who had just had another child in April, a daughter named Edmonia, for her and the family to join him in Philadelphia. As I did with Washington in the second pre-presidency episode, I don't intend to talk much here about the details of the Constitutional Convention, as I think that would be best suited to discuss in Madison's pre-presidency once we get to that point. However, I will state that Randolph was a critic of the plan of government known as the Virginia Plan. While we don't have time to go into the specifics of that plan here, three items of concern for Randolph in the debate between the various plans of government as proposed at the convention were the consolidation of the power of the executive in one person, the dangers of, quote, the excesses of democracy, and the undue influence being wielded by the small states to sway matters to their benefit at the expense of the larger states. Though there were parts of the plan of government as it was being developed that he liked, he also had grave reservations. Ultimately, if you look for Randolph's signature on the U.S. Constitution, you will be searching in vain. Edmund Randolph opted not to sign the Constitution. Supposedly, his final reasoning was that he felt the Constitution would not be ratified and did not want to be too heavily invested in it should the states have to figure out what to do in the possibility of its failure. His biographer Reardon seems to suspect that the decision not to sign was more for his own personal political gain than any firmly held convictions that Randolph may have. Certainly, within two years, he would be playing a key role in this new government. For now, though, I think we know enough to move forward with the narrative. I hope you now have a better understanding of who this Edmund Randolph is that we've been talking about for a bit and has been increasingly becoming a major player in our narrative. His extensive career made him highly suited to become the nation's first attorney general, but we shall have to see as our narrative progresses as to whether his skill set is suited to take up the reins at the State Department. Important points to keep in mind as we move forward. He was a fellow Virginian who had known Washington for a long period of time. He was experiencing financial difficulties in 1793, leading into his nomination to the position at the State Department. 
and he was not one to often pass up an opportunity. Got it? Good. As always, I take this opportunity to thank the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. We could not have shed more light on this obscure historic figure with as much clarity as we had without his crafting and smoothing out the rough audio. If you'd like to utilize his audio editing skills for your podcast or next audio project, reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, please send any questions, comments, or anything else my way via email at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies and on Twitter at presidencies89. Past episodes and source information for this episode can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Want to make sure you don't miss a single episode? There are various subscription options available on the right side of the website. This podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and more. Check it out if you're not subscribed already. You'll be glad you did. That about does it for this special episode. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.